Thank you. Hello, this is Rob Whitney. I am a uh, member of the law firm Soloway and Hollis. I'm also the president of the American Constitution Society Boston Lawyer Chapter and also a member of the Boston Bar Association's Civil Rights and Civil Liberties Section. And I want to welcome you all to today's um, panel discussion on protecting voting rights during the pandemic era. I'm going to now do a screen share just of a few outline slides and then we're going to go right into our panel. So if you bear with me while we share screen, um, you will uh, we'll begin the program. Thank you. Whoops. There we go. All right, so again, as I said, this is for, uh, protecting voting rights during the pandemic era, being sponsored both by the Boston Bar Association and the American Constitution Society. The issue, critical issues here that we're examining tonight uh, concern the protection of voting rights during the COVID-19 pandemic. And these issues include voter registration issues. How have voter registration restrictions affected voter rights? Voter disenfranchisement. How have the purge of voter rolls in various states affected voting rights? The ability to vote. How have limitations on the ability to vote in person and, um, and remotely affected voting rights? How can we get to a no excuse mail-in voting, providing prepaid mailing voting envelopes, expanding early voting, expanding the number of voting locations? These are all issues we'll hope to talk about and get questions on tonight. And finally, a topic of voter suppression. How do we as a nation fight against voter suppression tactics, such as overly restrictive voter ID laws, unreasonable witness requirements for absentee ballots, insufficient number of polling locations, and poll workers and voter intimidation at the polls. The uh, pandemic has given way to a host of rationalizations for limiting access to polling sites across the country. Um, and this has concerned voting rights activists. As voters in Kentucky and New York who cast ballots in primary elections just yesterday, the pall of the pandemic and the specter of voter suppression created a climate of uncertainty for some who might have wanted to vote in person, but questioned how they could do so safely and efficiently. Kentucky, which has had thousands of polling places in previous elections, had only 170 open on Tuesday, including a single voting polling location, sorry, for its largest city, Louisville, which has more than 600,000 residents. While there were no major incidents reported that prevented voting in New York and Kentucky, there were reports, however, of long lines at polling locations, difficulty in finding parking at the one major location in Louisville and missing ballots in various locations. Here's just a picture of people wearing masks uh, in line in Kentucky. An interesting issue in Kentucky was that there had been a, uh, basically an action filed. Um, it was heard by a federal judge, both by Republican legislator and several voters who had claimed that the drastic winnowing of voting places in the county's most populous and diverse districts violated the first and 14th amendments and amounted to voter suppression. Plaintiffs had requested injunctive relief to prohibit the use of a single polling location in counties with more than 35,000 registered voters, such as Louisville. The judge denied the request, stating that in his view, the vast restriction on polling locations in these counties did not amount to a constitutional violation. Activists stating that restricting all of Jefferson County's votes to a single location still amounted to voter suppression. 
Earlier this month in Georgia, um, there were many voting delays across the state that led officials there to call for investigations into why voters spend hours standing in line on a hot June day. In some precincts, the voting was extended to 9.30, in others to 10.10, and at least one. Voters reported standing in the hot summer for upper four hours, attempting to cast their ballots. In one case, it was over five hours. Many voters reported having to wait in line to vote after asking for absentee ballots and never getting them. And many voters left their lines without having cast their vote. The worst problems were reportedly concentrated in counties and locales with higher African-American populations. Here's another picture of the long voting lines in Atlanta, Georgia. One interesting source in the Secretary of State's office in Georgia noted that while typically 40,000 ballots for absentees are received in Georgia for an election, instead they had received 1.2 million absentee ballots and over 950,000 of the ballots were for mailing. There were numerous reports, as we said, of wait times in some locations, three to four hours, machines not being delivered to proper polling locations, and poll workers not even being trained sufficiently on how to operate these new machines. These are some of the issues we're going to talk about tonight that's happening all over the country. And our panelists tonight include Sophia Hall, our supervisory attorney, lawyers for civil rights, Brenda Wright, the senior advisor for legal strategies at Demos, Jean Viev Nadeau, a counsel for Protect Democracy, and Quentin Palfrey, the former Massachusetts Lieutenant Governor candidate and chair of the Voter Protection Corps. Sophia Hall joined Lawyers for Civil Rights in July 2016 and currently holds the title of Supervisory Attorney. Oops, let me get my little page here. There we go. As an experienced litigator, Sophia handles a broad range of civil rights matters, actively representing people of color and immigrant women to protect their rights in the workplace and in the community. She also spearheads the Massachusetts Election Protection, the nation's largest nonpartisan voter protection campaign, mobilizing several hundred thousand volunteers to provide real-time voter assistance. She's also a long-term member of the Election Modernization Coalition, coalition of of organizations that have successfully fought for pro-democracy legislation to modernize the Massachusetts voting system, including campaigns for early voting, automatic voter registration, and election day registration. She's a graduate of Boston College Law School, holds a bachelor's degree from Emory University, and has been recognized as one of Boston's top 25 most influential millennials of color and up-and-coming lawyer and the emerging leader by the Women's Bar Association. Brenda Wright, is the senior advisor for legal strategies at Demo. She's had led many progressive legal and policy initiatives on voting, voting rights, campaign finance reform, redistricting and election administration and other democracy and reform issues. Her extensive experience in federal court litigation includes two arguments before the US Supreme Court, Young v. Fortas and Randall v. Sorrell. She has written extensively on democracy and voting rights issues in both popular and scholarly publications. Jean-Bierre Nadeau is counsel with the nonpartisan Protect Democracy, where she works on a variety of pro-democracy issues, including ensuring a free and fair 2020 presidential election. Before joining Protect Democracy, Jean-Bierre 
spent more than seven years in the Massachusetts Attorney General's office in various leadership roles, including the Chief of the Civil Rights Division and State Enforcement Counsel. She was responsible for leading a team charged with enforcing a wide range of state and federal civil rights laws and for litigating a variety of affirmative impact cases in state and federal court, as well as other initiatives. She served in the Office of the General Counsel of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security and spent several years at private law firms. She received her JD from Stanford Law School. Finally, Quentin Palfrey is the chair of the Voter Protection Corps. Quentin has played a leadership role in voter protection programs in battleground states, in numerous presidential, senatorial, and gubernatorial campaigns over the past 15 years. He was the 2004 New Hampshire Voter Protection Director for the Kerry Edwards campaign, and I was up there in New Hampshire during that time. Uh, the 2008 Ohio Voter Protection Director for the Obama Biden campaign, and a senior advisor to numerous voter protection programs at the national level and in Massachusetts and other states. During the Obama administration, Quentin served as senior advisor for jobs and competitiveness in the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy and deputy general counsel for strategic initiatives at the US Department of Commerce. As I earlier mentioned in 2018, Quentin was the Democratic nominee for Massachusetts governor. And now uh, we're going to start, and Sophia is going to be our first speaker. Thank you. Thank you for that introduction, Rob. Um, it's wonderful to be here tonight. This is, I'm sure, to be a very dynamic conversation about a very timely topic, and I'm honored to be here with the panel of experts that um, I feel confident will be able to share much more than I know, but their longstanding insight into this topic. Uh, so I have the good fortune of being able to start this conversation in some ways in a fairly optimistic note. Um, you know, I would think that most people thinking of COVID-19, you know, it is shrouded in so much anxiety and so much pain from loss um, that it's almost ironic to say that for this given, this particular topic, there could be some positive or silver lining to that. But voting does actually offer us that opportunity because what COVID is doing is offering us an opportunity as the Commonwealth. Um, I hope today to give you a few moments about sort of the history of Massachusetts electoral laws, uh, election systems, and to talk about how COVID is an opportunity for us to do better. And yes, perhaps that's because it's due to necessity, uh, but anything that gets us to modernizing our election system to assisting those who are already disenfranchised is a good thing. And that is what COVID is going to do for us. So just to talk a little bit, you know, historically, unfortunately, the Commonwealth has not been uh, one of the best states in terms of moving forward and implementing significant pro-voter legislation. We have, some, uh, we have quite a few archaic sort of systems in place in Massachusetts. Um, and so talking about two in particular, you know, we've never had until very recently with COVID, no excuse absentee ballots. Um, and across the country, we saw a significant shift to the use of absentee and other mail-in systems around the 1980s. So to say that we are behind uh, in 2020 is, is sort of an over, <laughs> perhaps uh, is gracious. Um, similarly, in Massachusetts, we have inactive voter, inactive voter status, which so many people are confused about. It is not a common practice across the country. 
but in essence is an additional barrier over and above registration that's tied to a local community requirement for completing a, a town or city survey or census to ensure that you can vote. But many people don't understand that. They don't understand the connection to voting and that local mechanism. And that has been something that has been a barrier for quite some time in Massachusetts. And I think in terms of setting the stage about why modernizing, particularly here, is critical, I want to be frank. We are, the people on this panel, I can imagine, are not the people that we are modernizing for. You know, specifically, we are talking about huge swaths of the Commonwealth that are disabled, that have mobility impairments. We are talking about transient populations. We are talking about low-income individuals that do not have the benefits of vacation and sick leave. We are talking about single mothers that cannot find childcare to stand in lines and to vote on one day. We are talking about students. You know, there are so many populations that we have to ensure have the ability to vote. And the only way to do that is to modernize your system and to make it more accessible. And unfortunately, in Massachusetts, we just haven't seen enough of that. I will say, starting around 2014, we did start to see some sort of, um, sort of a jump start in that particular area. 2014, we passed early voting in Massachusetts, which was amazing. For those that are not familiar, early voting expands the time opportunities that people have to go and vote so that it's not isolated on just election day. And that's really a critical mechanism to allow that we, to allow increase to participation on voting. Similarly, very recently in 2018, we passed automatic voter registration, which sort of reframes the thinking about voting instead of having to opt in and choose and sort of secure your own right to vote, that's now an automatic option that's given through numerous state mechanisms and in essence allows people who don't want to participate to opt out, but doesn't create a new barrier for the many people that do. Granted, we haven't implemented that fully yet, but we are on our way there. And that is something that we've seen across the country in 2018 be a success, me, successful tool. What do we still have to do? Quite a few things. You know, certainly right now we're looking at a bill in Massachusetts to do early, um, excuse me, election day registration, EDR. I believe that with that passage, we will finally have had the three tools in place to be able to modernize our system in some way. Uh, but COVID, again, sort of has, has fast-tracked that progress in a way. Yes, we've been having conversations since 2014 about how do we make our election system more accessible, but we've never actually had to until COVID. And so COVID is giving us that opportunity. And what we've seen in the last two months is a bill before the House and now the Senate that have created multiple mechanisms that will make our election system more accessible, increase participation, and make it so that people don't have to choose between their own health, potentially if there is another sort of uptick in COVID in the fall, and their right to vote. And so some of the things that I wanna highlight about the Massachusetts bill that hopefully, maybe even tomorrow, will be on the governor's desk um, are a few new mechanisms such as we've expanded early voting. So now we have more opportunities, more dates and times for people to vote instead of just on election day. People might wonder why that helps with COVID. Well, the more days that we have, the less number of people at any given time that have to be in a polling site. So we're not just keeping voters safe, but we are also keeping poll workers safe, which we know historically has always been uh, a volunteer opportunity 
or a low paid opportunity that typically is utilized by elderly workers. Um, in addition to that, our, both our House and Senate bill for the first time in Massachusetts have created a mail-in voting system. So for the people that have the ability and can plan ahead, they will be able to vote from the comfort of their own home without having to go to a polling center. And we've thought quite hard about how do we ensure that it is most accessible. So if this bill passes, we will see the creation of an online portal so that people can apply for an application for a ballot for the primary and the November election through an online portal system. But even if they don't, everyone that's registered to vote, if this bill passes, will receive an application in the mail for both the primary and the presidential election. That's going to be pre-posted, so the postage is paid for, so that's not a barrier for people to participate. And then last but not least, we're gonna hopefully, if this bill passes, extend the registration deadlines that we have for people to participate. Timelines are really critical. They're not a sexy topic, but in Massachusetts, historically, 20 days before the election, if you weren't registered to vote, you lost your shot. And so this bill is moving that deadline so there is more time for people to register to participate. It's also asking a question about what should the timing look like in terms of receiving your ballot. Let's say you don't drop your ballot in the mail until the day before the election. You don't want a backup with the US postal system because of COVID to be the reason that your vote doesn't count. So taking into consideration some meaningful ways to think about what does it mean to, uh, for a ballot to be received and to ensure that it is counted. So again, you know, this isn't everything. Massachusetts has to think about EDR. We have to think about other modernizing tools. You're gonna hear from the panelists here about things nationwide that exist in Massachusetts that will continue to be barriers despite this uh, legislation. But again, COVID has given us an opportunity to do better. And while we have not done everything in Massachusetts, these bills give us the opportunity to do much more than we have for over a decade. And so that is really an exciting feat. Thank you, Sophia, very much. Um, our next panelist is uh, Brenda Wright. Brenda? Uh, thanks, Rob. And, and thanks, Sophia, for all the great work uh, in Massachusetts to get that legislation moving in a state where it shouldn't have been such a hard haul. <laughs> um, so I'm, my topic is uh, the issue of voter purging. And I'm gonna talk about it, I'm gonna sort of zoom out to a national level, not talking just about you know, what we're dealing with in Massachusetts, but talking about it um, at, at a broader level. Um, you know, the, I think almost everybody knows the importance of the role of getting people registered to vote um, because people who are registered to vote turn out at very high levels compared to those who are eligible to vote but not necessarily registered. Um, so, I, you know, I think almost everybody understands the importance of voter registration in the pipeline of democracy. I think there is often less um, attention to the importance of keeping people registered once they are on the rolls. And that's what I'm going to talk about. Um, the analogy that I like to use is um, the idea of trying to fill up a sink with water. And you can turn on the faucet 
you know, as much as you want and have, you know, water cascade in. But if there's a leak in the bottom, you're never going to be able to keep that sink full. And from my experience, the role of voter purges is sort of, it's that, it's that leak in the bottom of the sink that keeps us from keeping the sink full of registered eligible voters. Um, and so, you know, I want to talk a little bit about um, some of the protections that do exist against purging people and re removing them from the voter rolls. Um, the National Voter Registration Act of 1993 was designed in part to establish permanent voter registration for people whose eligibility has not changed since they registered to vote. And, you know, before the NVRA, states could actually require people to, you know, submit a new voter registration application every year or every two years or every four years, even if nothing, even if they were living in the same place and nothing about their eligibility had changed. So registration was not permanent. The NVRA tried to change that. Now, and, you know, so of course, we always need to have um, procedures for removing people from the roles who are no longer ineligible, such as people who have died, uh, you know, people who um, have changed their address outside the voting jurisdiction. People, you know, depending on state law, unfortunately, you know, if you become ineligible because of a criminal conviction or mental incapacity, you know, those are reasons that the NVRA still allows in terms of removing people. But um, in theory, those should be the only reasons, and the theory doesn't always match the reality. And people often end up getting taken off the voting rolls, even if nothing about their eligibility has changed. So I'm going to say a few words about, you know, how those uh, holes show up in the sink. Um, and, and hopefully, you know, a little bit about what we can do about it. Um, so one of the ways that uh, purges, people get purged from the rolls mistakenly is that just basic mistakes in identifying who has become ineligible. So for example, a state like Ohio uh, sends anybody who hasn't voted in the last two years a postcard saying, you need to reconfirm your eligibility in order to remain on the rolls. And there was a whole Supreme Court case about this uh, in which my organization, Demos, uh, was the lead counsel. Um, we thought that was completely contrary to the National Voter Registration Act. Uh, the Justice Department supported us on that position all the way until uh, the 2016 election happened. And then the new Justice Department came in and changed their position. Um, and we ended up losing on that issue by a five to four, four vote. Um, and so, you know, that's the whole idea that voting should be a use it or lose it proposition, uh, in our view, is totally foreign to the National Voter Registration Act. Um, 
the only good thing is that there are not a whole lot of states who do what Ohio does. Uh, there's just a few. So, um, but you know, what this case shows us is that uh, we have a lot of work to do to make our laws uh, stronger in terms of protecting the right of people to remain on the rolls. Um, another, you know, other states, I'm gonna talk about Georgia as an example. Uh, Georgia allows local election officials to target anybody they think might be ineligible for a municipal election and force them to show up for a hearing to determine if they remain eligible. So in, um, I think it was 2015, 2016, Hancock County, Georgia, they had a heavily contested election between a white and a black candidate. Um, local officials targeted about 180 mostly black voters, which was 16 to 17% of the black voters in the county. Sheriff's deputies showed up in some cases to serve the challenge letters on the residents. Um, and if you didn't show up to respond on time because you know you might have a job or family responsibilities, you were stricken from the rolls. There was a lawsuit over this, thank goodness, and the consent decree that stopped this practice. But, you know, it's another example of what can happen. Um, another issue that comes up in terms of taking people off the rolls in a flawed way is using flawed procedures to identify people who are supposedly registered in two different states. Um, and so there's something called the Interstate Voter Registration Cross-Check System, which was set up by the former Kansas Secretary of State, Chris Kobach, who many of you might have heard of. Um, he's been, you know, sort of a infamous, you know, vote suppressor um, from way back. Um, and this cross-check system purports to identify people who are registered and voting in multiple states. The problem is its formula for determining, for matching people who are supposedly the same person voting in two different states is utterly flawed to the extent that um, a, a social science paper found that flagging people in this way through cross-check uh, made errors almost 99% of the time. So, um, you know, and that's, uh, Demos has been involved in a lawsuit over that cross-check process in Indiana, um, uh, and, and along with other organizations. Um, you know, and I'm, the final thing I'm gonna mention in terms of how these um, how these removal procedures happen in a potentially, you know, really harmful and illegitimate way is there have been a number of, a large number of lawsuits and threats of lawsuits from so-called voter integrity groups, groups that say, well, we're really worried that there are too many people on the voting rolls. Um, and so we're going to, um, 
threatened to sue you or actually sue you know various counties or states for not doing enough to remove people from the roles um demos you know again my organization has been involved in intervening to defend against a whole bunch of those suits one of them was in broward county florida um where the district judge you know completely rejected the statistical methodology that the plaintiffs were relying on to argue that there were too many people on the rolls and yet we still see the same groups relying on exactly the same uh, methodology to say that you know additional jurisdictions should be forced to conduct um, you know even more voter purges so i wanted to see if i could just share use the share screen function before i finish um to provide a couple of links to resources that we have on these issues but i'm finding that challenging so i may wait until later in the discussion to do that and uh, go ahead and pass it off to the next speaker Great. Rob, I think you were muted. Am I up now? <laughs> no, you're, yeah, but you're, you're still sharing your screen, so. I think that's Brenda sharing her screen. Yeah, I'm sorry, yeah. <laughs> Brenda, you're still sharing your screen. Oh, sorry, okay. <laughs> then I was able to do it now, okay. You were, but. <laughs> we uh, let we me that. get out of that. <laughs> sorry. You're still in. Sorry. Uh, Brenda, I'm going to jump in and I, as the host, am, un am able to stop sharing your screen. So Great. thank you. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry. It's okay. Um, our next speaker is uh, Jean-Bierre Nadeau and go ahead. Great. Thank you. This would not be a sort of COVID time uh, event if there wasn't at least some technical glitch. <laughs> um, but thanks, I, like, I just want to reiterate how great it is that we're having this conversation, how happy I am to be on the panel with um, these folks. Um, and I will disagree with something Sophia said and that I think she's actually quite expert. Um, so I'm very glad to have her on here with me. Um, and, and sort of starting where where Sophia started as well, I think it's important, I'm going to talk a little bit about the pandemic and the voting intersection. Um, I think it's important to remember the, the framing of this as really a core democratic challenge, right? And that's ensuring that, that voters don't have to choose between exercising their fundamental right to vote um, and protecting their own health or the health of their families and the broader community. I mean, that is sort of the crux of the challenge that we're facing um, this year in particular on top of, you know, course many other challenges um, and, you know to address that challenge we really need robust voting options um, and extensive planning um, and you know time is ticking um, and and so there's uh, and there's plenty to do um, but just sort of at a high level you know what I, what I say about robust options and planning means expanding you know, voting by mail options including absentee voting um, 
sort of others have alluded to, Massachusetts, for example, is one of about 16 states that still require excuses to vote absentee. And that's one major hurdle, but there, there are others um, uh, in, in states across the country. So working now to, to begin expanding those options is key. Um, maximizing early voting, of course, because that sort of alleviates some of the pressure um, on, on election day voting in particular. And of course, ensuring that in-person voting remains an option, including on election day, and that it's as safe as, as reasonably possible um, during the pandemic. Um, but in addition to those things, you know, what it, it also means making sure that state and local authorities understand their emergency, um, their emergency authorities. So state and local officials have, in many cases, and it varies from state to state, but, but do have quite a bit of discretion in terms of making changes to the electoral system to address the, the pandemic and to, you know, to ensure that voters aren't having um, to make that, that fundamental choice between voting and, and their health. And I think what we've seen in the primaries is a lot of states really sort of struggling with understanding those authorities and implementing them. And so that's, that's something that we have to address. Um, and then lastly, you know, protecting voting during the pandemic means uh, transparency and active communication um, with voters, right? And that's not, that's just, not just about the changing rules um, that we've seen and may continue to see, um, you know, deadlines, locations of polling places and the like. Um, it's also gonna be really important to educate voters about how this election cycle may be different from others. Um, and that includes uh, maybe most importantly, the expectation that we'll have a result on election day. Right, that's something we've all come to, to expect. We have election day parties and the like, but the reality with increased voting by mail this year is that it, it's quite possible, absent a landslide one way or the other, um, that we won't have results as quickly as we're used to. And it's important that we make sure that the, the voting public understands that and that that doesn't become a basis to lose confidence in the election itself. So those are sort of three main components I wanted to highlight. Um, just on, I wanted to make a, a few points about the sort of politics around this nationally that I think are interesting. Um, I share some of the optimism that Sophia mentioned, um, but I think this is sort of like a good news, bad news maybe situation. Um, and then the good news is that some of these issues really are not, at least in my experience, not quite as partisan um, as some in Washington, for example, might lead us to believe. Um, I'm doing a lot of work with the National Task Force on Election Crises, which is a you know 50 plus person group of people, cross-partisan, um, with experts from fields ranging from voting rights to national security to public health, includes you know, the heads of major civil rights organizations um, and high-ranking former Republican officials. So it's a, a wide range of, of really expert folks who in March put out extensive guidance on voting during the, the COVID pandemic um, that sort of embraces many of the things that I just mentioned. And I, you know, I say that, I say that not just to, to plug the task force as a good source of information and guidance, but because I think it's a good example of sort of cross-partisan consensus uh, on some of these issues. And I think, I think that's a reason to be optimistic and something to lean into, especially in a, a a period of time when we're we're so um, divided in many respects, um, and you know another point of good news I think is that on the state and local level at least, um, we're seeing Democrats and Republicans alike really sort of starting to embrace these issues and tackle the concerns that are coming up during the, the pandemic era, and that's especially those who are closest right to administering elections, secretaries of state, election directors, and the like. Um, so that I think that there's some good news there that. Um, this is not purely a, a red or blue issue. 
Um, and so some optimism there. Um, but you know, it's not all good news. You know, overall, um, the polling that I'm seeing shows pretty high support across the country for increased voting by mail, at least during the pandemic. So something like two thirds, you know, depending on the, the poll, two thirds of people support increased voting by mail, at least during the pandemic. Um, but those numbers are sort of flipped when you look at sort of Republican voters, um, where only one third nationally support voting by mail. And that, that does vary some from state to state. So there are some states with much more experience with voting by mail and higher confidence in it. And I'm hopeful that that's something we'll see improve. Um, there's also some interesting research out there sort of around the semantics around voting during the pandemic. Um, and that there's a lot, of, lot to that, but one of the things I found most interesting is that the terms sort of voting by mail or voting at home um, are concerning to some folks, whereas the term absentee voting is, is less concerning. Um, and I think for some of us, we may think that's a distinction without a difference, so to speak. Um, but it references, and then there are some practical differences depending on what we're talking about, but I think it really gets to like a key comfort level in terms of what we're talking about. And absentee voting is something that, you know, we're all sort of familiar with, at least to a certain degree. Um, you know, I think one thing worth pointing out too is that, um, and that we don't see enough and maybe isn't fully reflected in some of this polling is that there's really no partisan advantage to voting by mail, at least not, at least not sort of in the aggregate. Um, it really, it really depends a little bit on where you are, but overall, neither party can really claim an advantage. Um, and so there's no reason, like, I guess, in my view, that we shouldn't um, all be sort of working to, to embrace this. Um, there are, of course, exceptions um, in some states, states like Texas, for example, that is really fighting hard um, against reforms, but um, there are other sort of, you know, red states that are doing just the opposite. So um, I just wanted to highlight that because I think there's a disconnect between some of what's happening in the country and some of the rhetoric that we're hearing, especially at the national level and, and most especially coming from the president in, in recent days even. Um, so I, th I think that's important. Um, and, you know, and then last, I just sort of, you know, I, I know Quentin's gonna talk more about some of these issues, um, but I, I think it's just important to remember that the consequences of not taking adequate sort of advanced steps to address the pandemic are really quite serious. And others have sort of gotten to this um, Rob mentioned at the beginning, Kentucky and Georgia, um, you know, sort of <laughs> in the COVID time passing differently, I feel like some of us have forgotten Wisconsin, for example, um, which, which you know, experienced many of the same problems. Um, and, and in some ways, it was an example of all the various things that can go wrong. Um, and that not only things that led to mass disenfranchisement, and in particular, you know, we're looking at um, older voters, voters with disabilities, racial minorities being particularly hit hard when, the, when things go wrong, um, but also serious public health consequences. So there have been a number of COVID cases tied at least pretty closely to, to voting during the pandemic and the fact that there were long lines and crowds and people who wanted to stay home and vote absentee but couldn't and the like. Um, so the consequences are quite serious. I mean, that's why protected democracy among others you know, brought litigation in Wisconsin in order to force changes for November. Um, um, and, you know, I, I think one of the things that makes Wisconsin in particular a standout and that we'll, maybe we'll talk about later today is not just that it had these same problems we're seeing in other places, but it really highlighted some of the legal issues. And we, you know, we had a, our first Supreme Court case on many of these issues come out from Wisconsin. And it'll be, so it'll be interesting to see how that, that plays out and how it affects the ability of state and local officials to 
make last minute changes as we come to November. So, I, you know, I won't sort of revisit everything that happened in Wisconsin because it is a bit of what, what we've been seeing in other states and, I, and Quentin's gonna talk a bit more about some of that. Um, and I'll just highlight our lawsuit is of course one of many. There is, uh, suffice it to say, a robust landscape of litigation going on right now about these issues. Um, and they range from, you know, our lawsuit is sort of brings Voting Rights Act and constitutional claims that basically say states like Wisconsin need to need to plan ahead and need to sort of get um, get their house in order in order to avoid disenfranchising voters come November. Um, there's a, a, a wide range of litigation going on nationwide to affect things like you know excuse-based absentee voting, some of the signature and notary rules that we're seeing, and a whole host of other things. So it's a very active legal space right now. So interesting. Um, but all again coming back to the fact that this is about really fundamental issues and the fundamental right to vote. Um, and so this year of, of, of all years for a host of reasons is really sort of highlighting that and some of the tensions that we experience as a country. And so with that, I'll, I'll stop for now. Mute myself, sorry. Thank you. Um, Quentin, uh, you're up. Thank you so much, Rob, and uh, what a pleasure it is to be here with Sophia and, and Brenda and Genevieve. And uh, looking through the uh, participant list, I see a lot of old friends and, and folks with a ton of voting rights experience. So it's nice mm -hmm. to be with you all, at least virtually. Um, and I'm pleased to hear uh, Sophia and Genevieve and Brenda, to some extent, um, uh, focusing on some of the silver linings here. Uh, I'm going to um, take a slightly more alarmed and alarmist tone. Um, and I'd like to sort of do three things. One is I'd like to sort of spend a moment talking about uh, why I think this is uh, a profound threat uh, to the future of our democracy. Um, I think that this is a perfect storm um, in terms of the challenges that voters face and the work that we have to do over the next four and a half months uh, to secure um, our democracy. Um, I'll spend a few minutes just um, laying out some of the research that the Voter Protection Corps has recently put out on in-person voting. And then I, I want to return to a couple of the comments that Sophia made about uh, the Massachusetts landscape. Uh, but in fir first, I just sort of want to start um, with a, a real sort of a high level of concern about five uh, kinds of challenges I think that we face. And the first is um, some shockingly undemocratic disparities that we've seen uh, for many years between the experience that people of color and young people face uh, when registering and voting um, and the challenges um, that other folks uh, uh, in, in our um, in our democracy uh, you know, don't face. Um, and some of that is, is the work that uh, Brenda was talking about in terms of voter purges and challenges in registration. And a lot of that is the shockingly long lines um, that we've seen for many years um, and that we've seen exacerbated over the last few weeks in Georgia and Nevada, um, you know, in Kentucky and Philadelphia and in DC uh, and certainly in Wisconsin. Um, so we have a baseline of uh, essentially an apartheid uh, type uh, voting system where uh, people of color um, are facing obstacles just aren't faced by others in the democracy. Uh, we have a president uh, and those around him who consistently weaponize lies about voter fraud in order to raise systemic challenges um, to voters. Uh, we have foreign interference um, that's been well documented um, by foreign uh, adversaries. Um, and misinformation um, targeted at vulnerable populations to make it harder for them to vote. Um, and now we face a pandemic uh, that is forcing a fairly badly run system 
um, to be transformed very, very quickly um, to try to accommodate a huge set of uh, challenges between uh, public health measures and um, the right to vote. And finally, we have a president um, who has made it clear um, that he will attack the legitimacy of anything other than uh, an election that brings his reelection um, and is already signaling um, that he will uh, he will dispute any uh, any results in laying the groundwork for discrediting our election. So I think that we have a really significant uh, set of challenges to our democracy and that we should take very seriously uh, those challenges. Um, so I believe very strongly uh, that we need vote by mail to be a key piece of this strategy. Um, and um, that uh, what the president has said recently about uh, vote by mail and the tendency uh, to fraud uh, is, is, is deeply uh, duplicitous um, and is based on, frankly, lies. Uh, the scholarship on vote by mail um, suggests that it is not uh, a big uh, risk of, of fraud. And in the states uh, in the West that have implemented vote by mail, it has been able to increase voter participation um, and the levels of, uh, of fraud have been very low. And that's true in both red and blue states. Um, so uh, pushing forward with expansion of vote by mail and no excuse absentee voting is absolutely the right thing to do. At the same time, I worry that the conversation nationally about voting reforms is overlooking the very significant challenges uh, that voters are facing in in-person voting, have faced through the primary and are likely to face in November. And so I think it's important to spend a moment talking about why in-person voting reforms matter. So just as a baseline, in 2016, 110 million Americans voted in person. The previous high water mark for the utilization of vote by mail is less than 25%. Um, and so whatever we end up doing, we are likely to have a world in which most people uh, vote by mail. Now, the populations that are most likely to vote in person are exactly the populations that have faced the greatest obstacles to registering and voting historically. So the group that uses in-person voting the most is African-Americans. Black Americans have voted at an 88% in-person rate uh, in 2018. Um, after that, you're talking about groups like Native Americans who don't use the postal service in a statistically high number, uh, people with disabilities, uh, younger people, homeless people, okay? So the, when you talk about securing in-person voting, you are talking about removing the obstacles uh, to historically disenfranchised populations. Um, and we're talking about 116,000, 117,000 public uh, polling places. Uh, we're also talking about mobilizing almost a million people, okay? Um, so uh, if you think about the 2020 census, uh, we're likely to have to use about a million people. Um, this, is a, this is a problem on that. Uh, scale. Um, during the pandemic, it is likely that there are some polling places that are going to be closed or moved. Um, but our studies have suggested that the percentage of polling places that are actually in senior centers or nursing homes or places that are fundamentally incompatible uh, with in-person voting during a pandemic is actually relatively low. The greatest threat here is actually that COVID 
and uh, the budget constraints that are coming along with COVID, as well as voter suppressive uh, administrations um, in some states, um, is going to cause pressure to close polling places as opposed to move polling places. Let me give you a few examples. So in the atrocious primary election um, in Milwaukee, in Wisconsin, a couple of months ago, they went from 180 polling places down to five. And those huge lines that we saw, um, and in fact, the pandemic risk that was heightened, um, because there's some evidence that some people contracted the uh, the virus um, because of standing in the line resulted directly uh, from that polling place consolidation. So one of the things that we have to do when we're thinking about how to uh, make the elections in November not look like what happened last week in Georgia is push back against this notion that polling place consolidation is an acceptable solution. The other thing that I think we're gonna see in terms of challenges uh, to in-person voting um, is a lack of poll work. So um, more than 50% of the poll workers in the last election were over the age of 60. Election Assistance Commission did a study uh, and found that most polling places had trouble recruiting uh, volunteers um, to be poll workers. Um, these are some of the heroes of democracy, but it's hard work. Um, and uh, older folks uh, may be less, uh, less interested in uh, participating in, in, in that role in this cycle. Um, and so we are going to have a, a lot of work to do uh, to make sure there are enough poll workers. And poll workers are deeply important uh, for keeping those lines shorter. And we know um, as, a, as a statistical matter um, that long lines contribute directly uh, to a drop off in participation um, and is actually one of the most significant forms of voter suppression that we have in this country is the disparity in the length of line line in communities of color versus um, in white communities. Um, so we need to deal with poll worker recruitment. So um, I just wanna, I, I wanna mention four uh, suggestions um, that come out of uh, the Voter Protection Corps report, um, which I think are important. It's, it falls under the general heading of an all, all, all of the above approach um, to expanding access um, to voting during uh, the pandemic. The first is that we gotta protect neighborhood voting sites. We have to make sure that we're not consolidating polling locations uh, like we've seen throughout the primary, um, that we're moving as opposed to shutting down polling locations. Um, number two, we need a massive effort to recruit, train, and protect poll workers. We need to give them PPE. We need to make sure that it is safe uh, for people uh, to participate in this role, uh, but we need to be working hard to recruit younger people uh, to be uh, more, um, more aggressive in our recruiting efforts um, to make sure that there are enough people um, to staff those polls so that we can keep those lines short. Uh, number three, we need to expand early vote. Um, early vote is a great way of spreading out voting, of making sure that voting is safe, um, and also of relieving the pressure uh, on in-person voting on election day. Um, and then finally, we need um, to communicate to voters that it's safe to vote. Um, so we need to make sure that that's true. We need to do the hard work of making sure that we can do in-person voting properly on election day. Uh, but then we need to encourage people to come out to vote. And I think this is one of the areas uh, where we're likely to face uh, misinformation. Uh, I think that there will likely be um, foreign uh, funded and directed uh, voter misinformation 
uh, using COVID as the argument um, for making it less likely uh, that people feel comfortable voting. We need to make sure that nobody needs to um, make a hard choice between um, ex you know, exercising their constitutional right and protecting their own health and the health of their community. Um, and then we need to communicate to people that it's safe. Um, and then finally, I just want to spend one moment on uh, something that Sophia was, was talking about, which is uh, Massachusetts has not been a leader. Um, and I want to applaud uh, the people on this call uh, who have played a, an important role in pushing to the brink uh, a very important set of measures, uh, which hopefully the governor will sign to expand voting uh, in the pandemic in our Commonwealth, but we can do much, much better. Uh, there were so many measures that were left on the cutting room floor of that uh, conversation on Beacon Hill. And we need to demand uh, better election laws in Massachusetts, um, including, as Sophia said, uh, vote by, uh, uh, election day registration. Uh, we ought to send ballots to everybody, not just ballot applications. Uh, we should have done a lot more to protect in-person voting. Uh, and uh, you know the automatic voter registration measure that was passed um, in the Commonwealth um, and has come online recently isn't being implemented in anywhere near as robust a way as we need to. So we can do a lot better in Massachusetts. Um, and I think all of us um, should continue to push uh, for reforms to make it easier for people to register and vote. Great. Thank you. Um, all right, we're gonna open it up to questions. So if anyone has any questions, you should post them on the Q&A tab on the bottom of your screen and they'll show up in my screen so I can take a look at them. But I did wanna follow up while we're waiting for any um, participant questions, I did wanna follow up um, with Quentin and others on the issue about the tension, I see it anyway, between in-person voting and those advocating mail-in voting. And it's not really a tension, but it seems to be working that way such as the perception, as you just mentioned, that someone might say in a state, well, since we're doing mail-ins, we don't need to have as many polling locations, which I have seen and you have seen as well. And of course, that's not true. You need to do both, as you mentioned. So, um, but I'm wondering if you're seeing and have seen states and locations, particularly making this argument so in order to reduce physical polling locations, either through a fear of COVID or basically as an argument, well, we're focusing on absentee and mail-in, so we don't need to worry about polling locations. So let me just make a distinction between states that have been set up over a period of time um, as primarily vote by mail states, right? So there's some states that have, um, have been uh, focused on this, they have a campaign for this, they have some success with this. I think one of the things that we've seen, um, for instance, in Iowa at the caucus, is when you change a voting system very quickly, um, often it is hard to implement it well. So let me give you an example in Massachusetts. Um, when we went live with early voting, it was extremely successful. It is an important measure. I'm a huge fan of early vote. Um, but in the first election, after we implemented early vote in Massachusetts, it was adopted at much higher levels uh, among more affluent communities and among whiter communities and at much lower uh, levels in gateway cities um, and among communities of color. And so uh, one of the things we have to make sure is um, that we do not um, sort of think, oh, we flipped the switch, we've got vote, vote by mail, everything is taken care of. That's just not the experience 
that we're likely to have, um, particularly if we're making these changes at the last minute. The other thing I will say is these things can work together very well. Um, so one of the things that vote by mail can do is relieve pressure on the early vote and election day uh, in-person voting systems and make it easier um, for us to have shorter lines, for us to have safer polling places. So we absolutely do want to bank those votes, make it easier for folks. And think of, it, think of it this way. The census does the same thing, right? So the census tries to send a bunch of notices out to people. And if they mail them back or if they go online and, and fill out the census, then you don't need to send a human being to the place. But if you actually want a good count, and particularly if you want to catch uh, communities of color, people move around a lot, younger people, uh, people without stable addresses. The way you got to do it is you got to chase those people. Uh, vote by mail is going to get the affluent folks, um, but we do need to make sure that we make the effort uh, to make sure that people of color and people who have historically mm -hmm. faced obstacles to voting have the opportunity to vote in person because that's what that that's what's likely to happen. Brenda? Yeah, uh, thanks Rob. Uh, yeah, and just to amplify a couple of points. Um, you know, one is, yeah, uh, for example, in Ohio, during its presidential primary, you know, it, they, they changed the date right during the midst of the worst of the coronavirus, and they said, oh, it's only going to be uh, vote by mail. And they simply didn't have enough bandwidth, enough procedures in place to really make that workable for everybody. Um, and so that, I mean, it, it, it would be a terrible thing if that were repeated during the general election. The other really important point about the need for um, continued access to in-person voting or early voting or drop boxes is the impact on Native Americans. Uh, Native Americans and there's a huge important report that's been put out by the Native American Voting Rights uh, Coalition about this just very recently. Um, so often they don't have what's called a 911 address. They don't have an address that says you're at 65 Oak Street. Instead, they have an address that says, I'm a mile past the intersection of X and Y. Um, often the places where Native Americans receive mail is a post office box. And so any state, any place with a significant Native American population that tries to go all vote by mail is just leaving out this huge important segment of the population. And so, you know, the need for drop boxes uh, to put ballots in, the need to designate, you know, tribal council offices as places where people can vote. Um, that's a huge, huge issue. Okay. Rob, one more thing. Yeah, go ahead, Sophia. I mean, absolutely, completely agree with the panelists about how these two measures have to complement each other for us to be successful for our primary in our, in our November election. One of the things that we saw in Massachusetts that lawyers for civil rights and other advocates really pushed for in terms of in-person polling, um, in-person voting was this requirement for uh, critical planning and clear communication about decisions for polling sites. So pushing for using an equity lens 
before any decisions could be made about closing or consolidating or moving polling sites and, uh, and requiring a period of notice prior to the election so that community members could actually know what those decisions were that once they were made, assuming again, they've already looked at this with an equity lens. Um, and that is something that people are still pushing for. It didn't make it into the House bill, it was much more active in the Senate bill. And we certainly hope that that is something that makes it into the final bill that the governor signs. Because again, really believe that both of these pieces are gonna need to work together. We're gonna have to have good planning to have a successful election. I add one point on that, Rob. Um, one thing I neglected to mention is how critical funding is to so many of the things that we're talking about. Right. Um, and I, I just think it's, we need funding at, at multiple levels, both state and federal. And I think what we've seen so far is really disappointing sort of effort at the federal level, or I should say results at the federal level in terms of getting funding where it needs to be. I mean, the estimates of what it will take to get us ready for November, taking into account all these extra COVID challenges are in the billions. And so far we've only seen, you know, 400 million allocated to the states. And even that has some conditions that's making it difficult for some states to get the money. Never mind, get it from the state level down to the, you know, the local level where it's most needed. So I just sort of add that as a, a layer of, of, of need that's here. Yeah, great, thank you. Oh, there was a question from our participants um, asking the panel, um, looking ahead to the November election, what concerns you most and which states concern you most where there might be problems? Um, looking ahead based on sort of where we are, looking how the primaries took place and also looking ahead to obviously the battleground states, which we all know mostly which they are, but they're shifting around. But you know, which ones concern you most and on what issues do they concern you? I guess at Wisconsin, are you concerned about voting lines there? What, are there any particular places that you're concerned about? So I'm happy to take a crack. I mean, I think Please. that one thing to be concerned about is that the trends we're seeing um, in the primaries continue, but at a much larger scale um, in the general election. So I don't see any particular reason for confidence um, that we are on track uh, to run better elections when we have many, many more voters in November. Um, and so that some of those key structural questions that I was talking about um, in terms of uh, poll worker shortages and polling place uh, consolidation um, certainly keeps me up at night. But I would say a couple of other things. Um, I think that we are worried about misinformation. Um, I think some of the micro-targeting um, and the voter suppressive messaging that we saw in 2016 and 2018 that we've seen around the world is a warm up uh, for much more sophisticated uh, work. Um, the US Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit recently lifted an injunction the RNC was under, uh, which prevented in-person voter suppressive activity at the polls. The um, RNC has committed uh, $50 million um, to engage in those activities. I think that we're gonna see it at scale. Um, and then I think that we have a president who's not going to concede. Um, I think that under almost any circumstances, he is going to try to make uh, the thing that he is causing to be, uh, to be messy uh, look like the basis uh, for him to not concede the election. Um, and I think he's already laying the groundwork for that. I think one of the things that's going to make that harder is if you've got a fairly high percentage of your votes uh, coming in by mail, 
and if you allow uh, votes that are postmarked by election date to count, both of which I think you should during the pandemic, uh, then it is likely um, that we are going to have vote counting um, several days after um, the election. And um, I think that there's a real danger. I think we're in a constitutional crisis right now, uh, but I think there is a real danger of a full-blown uh, constitutional crisis in November um, if, uh, you know, if circumstances don't, don't change. So there's a lot that makes me nervous. Yeah, go ahead, Brenda. So, uh, yeah, to add to that, I, you know, I think the states that have the most restrictive procedures and laws about absentee balloting are going to be a huge problem. And Texas is a perfect example of that, you know, where, you know, the totally sensible proposal that if you are afraid of contracting COVID-19, you should qualify for an absentee ballot. The state officials are fighting that tooth and nail in the courts. And, you know, honestly, that's, I don't think that's a partisan issue because I think the people who are most at risk are older people, you know, who don't tend to skew in Texas, you know, democratic, but what, I, I feel like there's, there's some kind of partisan thing motivating that. And yet there's just a lack of understanding of who are they actually hurting? Um, so I, that's one issue you know, that I would raise. I think another issue that really, really worries me that we haven't really touched on yet is just voter registration itself. So, you know, usually in the run-up to a presidential election, voter registration massively increases. We haven't seen those increases that we usually expect in a lot of states. In fact, voter registration is way behind. Part of that is because uh, DMVs, have been closed um, that, you know, are required to offer voter registration assistance. And organizations like DEMOS, we've done a lot of work to, over the past few years, to require DMVs to offer voter registration during remote transactions, as well as in person, and yet there still seems to be a huge drop-off. Same with public assistance agencies. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, I, I feel like, um, and then, the, you know, even being able to conduct voter registration drives in the traditional way. Right. Standing outside the grocery store with a table. Can't do that. Uh, going door to door and knocking. So, you know, one of the key imperatives for anybody working on voter registration or get out the vote, you know, no matter who you are aligned with is get your folks to check on their voter registration status. You know, is it up to date? Are they registered? Can they use online voter registration? But to me, that's, that's one of the things lurking in the background that not, it's not as, as visible, but it keeps me awake at night. Yeah, it's one of my questions I was, I was gonna ask was about um, this exact issue of voter registration, particularly states that have some more recently than others, um, you know, restricted groups from gathering uh, registrations, in other words, going out, collecting them, and then returning them. And as you also mentioned, I know in Georgia at one time, and then I think it was a legally challenge, but they did have an exact match law. So 
talking about where the voter's name on the registration record had to match exactly what it matched on your voting rights. So other ways, you know, other efforts to restrict uh, registration, which is, as we mentioned earlier, is the, gate, is the gateway to get to vote. You don't do that. You don't even get anywhere near the, the polling station or, or the mail-in ballot as well. Rob, can I make one comment about the prior question? And I think this is a little sure. bit of a advocate here, but sure. you know, I think that as, as voting right advocates and as sort of uh, pro-democracy warriors, I think it's sort of a mistake that we frequently ask the question or frame the question, you know, where can, where can our resources, where can our volunteer hours be um, placed where they can do the most good in terms of the outcome and thinking about the good that we're serving as the outcome I think it's really critically important that even in states where there aren't battlegrounds per se to the outcome, places that are traditionally going to be blue or going to be red, it doesn't mean that there isn't the need for the protection of the right to vote. There are so many disenfranchised people in each right. state who don't know their rights, who don't know how to navigate those last minute um, issues when there's a change to a precinct or they can't tell if they're registered because of a problem with a hyphen or, or some other punctuation. I mean, there are such critical issues that we see every voting cycle through election protection where we, through our assistance, people can cast their vote. They can, they can sort of engage in the crown jewel of, you know, civil rights and, and the electoral process. And I think there's something to be said in terms of people thinking through how do they play a role this fall, recognizing that we're all going to need that help everywhere, even if there is a state that perhaps the outcome is certain because there are still people's rights to be protected here. And with the system that, you know, we're less than 10 weeks away from our primary and we don't have a bill yet, <laughs> with them <laughs> implementing systems last minute, like Quinton mentioned, you know, we're critically going to need volunteers to make sure that people know their rights this election yeah. cycle more than we ever have. And that's gonna be across the board. Right. It's interesting. One of the questions we've gotten from the, from the uh, participants is, looking for pro bono opportunities available. Um, where can they go to get uh, information about um, how they could help out in different states? Um, also about being able to participate on uh, election day monitoring, which I know Quentin is in, has done a lot of as, and others. So uh, go ahead, Brenda. So um, certainly, you know, I would point to the election protection program that's been run for many years now by the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights under law. Um, you know, it's, it's coordinated at, in their national office, but, you know, I know that the Boston office, the Boston affiliate, you know, does great work on that and they have affiliates. Even, even in the states where they don't have standing Lawyers Committee affiliates, uh, the Election Protection Program brings in um, attorneys or legal professionals to man the hotlines or to be there on election day. Um, I think that's a great way to plug in uh, for sure. Um, I also would emphasize that, um, you know, we've, all, we've traditionally been very focused on election day and what's happening on election day. And that's gonna remain important, but there's also going to be, if we're lucky, <laughs> at least, um, if we're doing the right things, there's gonna be a lot of voting that happens before election day. Yeah. So I think there's a need for some new ways of thinking about how do we help people vote by mail? How do we help people you know, make, take advantage of early voting? Um, and so 
you know, the election day will still be very important, but I think it's important to think about these other, you know, venues as well. Yeah, I think that's a. Go ahead, Brenda. Sorry. I think that's a terrific point, Brenda. Um, so uh, certainly, if people are looking for volunteer opportunities, um, we would love to have you at voter-protection.org. Um, I think that one of the things that people have not focused on as much, we've thought a lot about recruiting um, uh, poll monitors and less about recruiting poll workers, if you can get poll behind workers. the desk. Um, yes. I think there's going to be a real shortage. I think that's a real, really great way to do it. And you can also encourage other people to do that. I want to build off of something that Sophia said, though, um, mm -hmm. which is that I think that there's a little bit of this obsession with battleground states um, and with narrowing the electoral map. Yep. And I think, unfortunately, that you know, our media environment encourages that. Um, and I actually think, um, so for the civil rights reasons that um, Sophia mentioned, but for some other practical reasons, um, that's the wrong way to think about it. So if you sort of think about what happened, uh, the sort of awful morning when we had to tell our kids that Trump had been elected uh, in uh, November of 2016, um, you know, it wasn't just that we'd lost the presidency. Um, at the time, um, the Republicans had taken over the Senate, the House, the governorships, the state legislatures, and the courts. And this was the culmination of a process that goes back at least to the Christian Coalition and Ralph Reed and Newt Gingrich and the Tea Party, where what they did was they started to invest in these local races um, and compete and then use those uh, those offices in order to stack the courts and gerrymander the districts and uh, skew the campaign finance laws and distort our democracy in a lot of ways. And when we think about how we're going to claw our way out of that mess, um, there's like there's this tendency to think about shiny objects. We win the back the presidency, which, by the way, fundamental um, to uh, the future of our democracy. But um, it's not enough. Um, if you think about what's actually going to bring our democracy back, it's going to be a million local races. It's going to be getting candidates of color, first-time candidates, women candidates, more people involved in the system. It's going to be city council races. It's going to be, you know, county commissioner races and down-ballot statewide races. And so even, you know, to the extent that you're talking about certain states and other states, we're seeing lots of states in play that have historically not been. Louisiana, Alabama, Kentucky, Texas, uh, Georgia are all of a sudden having these really interesting and important races. And so I, I would like resist the temptation to say, here's a really sexy state, like everybody should focus on Wisconsin and Pennsylvania or something, right? And think about like where in your community can you serve your democracy? What are the local candidates? What are the local races? Or if you're going to look um, outside of the Commonwealth for opportunities, think about places that are, um, you know, are, are, are sort of not historically uh, battleground states where everybody focuses and think about can we, uh, can we promote democracy there as well. There's a bunch of um, questions coming in about it's great to see um, how can we help, uh, how can we volunteer. How can we participate? I'm glad you've, you've mentioned um, some of those uh, areas in which they can do. Someone mentioned BU Law School has election day off, so are you ready for us to come help out? And I think, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So BU, BC, uh, any other Boston area school, there'll be a lot of activities in Massachusetts, Maine, New Hampshire, well, I'll probably be on election day um, as well. Um, yeah, I, I, would, I would just underscore 
the issue about poll workers. Yeah, great. Um, not just on election day, although that's extremely important because as we all know, it's always been older people. Um, and they, you know, they have good reason to stay away. I, you know, no one can blame them. Um, and even in, you know, as, as Quentin was saying, and as, as Sophia was saying, doesn't matter if it's a, you know, totally blue state, totally red state, yeah. people still need to be able to vote. They need to be able to go into the polling place, you know, and cast a vote and have poll workers there. So I, you know, I've really been encouraging, you know, the younger people reaching out to me about how can I volunteer? You know, really think about, it's not glamorous, you know, it's, but it's so important to the machinery of elections. So please think about uh, the poll worker aspect of things. Okay. And just to add to that, Rob, I think you yeah. mentioned BU and other colleges. That's a great mechanism, colleges, law schools, for sort of galvanizing and organizing volunteers. And so for folks who are looking to sort of be a little more entrepreneurial, I think there's a lot of opportunity to do some organizing um, for, for volunteers in that respect. There was another question that came in about um, looking at, um, I think it, it sort of goes on where the issues might be, but in terms of a litigation, do you see any sort of anticipate any additional hotspots that are coming up or litigation that's beginning to start now or percolating through the system that you see? I mean, obviously in Wisconsin, it happened overnight, so you can't predict that, but are you, are you sort of got an eye out for trouble spots um, based on just because sort of what's been happening both in the primary schedule as well? And, um, you know, what do you see coming as a result of that? I can start and I'll let other folks yeah. jump in. Like, I think there's, there is a lot going on, so there's a lot of places to pay attention. Right. Um, Texas is really interesting, and if someone could correct me, but I think it's Texas that is the issue of age discrimination in voting, which we haven't touched on, is hmm. potentially, I mean, we'll see if the Supreme Court takes it up, but the, the issue that, you know, many states that have excuse-based right. absentee voting, some of those have um, exceptions for older voters. And so there's an argument that that, um, uh, violates the Constitution and it is a form of age discrimination. A really interesting issue that's percolating, um, and so we'll see. We'll see where it goes. Um, I think the RNC suing California is really interesting. Uh, it may get mooted out potentially by state legislation and the like, but it's sort of real shot across the bow because California is a state that has so much mail-based voting already. To choose that state to litigate in is interesting, and there are some really interesting issues raised there about the governor's authority. So, so I mentioned earlier in my remarks about this, about states struggling with emergency authorities and who can do what in an emergency. So that's, that's interesting. Um, I think the Wisconsin litigation is interesting. I'm a little biased there. We have a really interesting Voting Rights Act claim that I haven't seen many other places, which is that the failure to, the failure of you know, state authorities or local authorities to take measures to address the pandemic um, violates a provision in the Voting Rights Act Section 11B that prohibits threats, intimidation, and coercion. So it's really a, a theory of a failure to protect, which we've seen in other contexts, and that um, and that, that that is a basis for liability. So there's, and when it really gets at sort of the fundamental nature of voting and the need to to, to um, have protections in place. So that's just a few examples of some interesting litigation. Okay. Any other panelists? Yeah, go ahead, Brenda. I mean, there is a boatload of litigation going on. Um, you know it. In you know, specifically on voting during COVID-19, 
a lot of litigation happened during the presidential primaries. You know, some of it was successful. A lot of it was not. But uh, to the extent it was not successful, in many places it was because there was such a short time frame. Right. Um, you know, nobody really knew, you know, nobody was really focused on it until just a few weeks before a lot of the primaries. And so in a number of those states, such as Florida, you know, where Demos is involved in litigation over relaxing absentee ballot procedures and other, you know, accommodations for people with disabilities and language access, you know, the judge denied us relief in the primary, but said, you know, these are serious claims, you know, so we're back in court yeah. leading up to the general election. And, you know, we've litigated in Ohio over this. I mean, there's much, much going on uh, throughout the country, for sure. And, um, and the other thing is, you know, there are also unexpected things that come up, you know, right before, like, there's a hurricane, you know? Uh, so, you know, there's, uh, you know, there's an earthquake there, you know, there are things that 9-11 happened like right before election day or on election day in New York. So I think that groups like Demos and others, you know, Protect Democracy and other uh, lawyers committee and others are just, you know, we're always kind of just waiting to see what, you know, what do we need to jump into. Okay. okay. What sort of one final question, well, we have a few more minutes left. I'm just wondering what you all see as the Sort of the financial impact on the states. I mean, they have to pay for elections. They actually have to get, as we talked about, get poll workers there, hire security, print up ballots, um, have basically people that open the absentee ballots, maintain the machines. As a result of the, the COVID crisis, I mean, we, we've been hearing about how many states are suffering as a result of lack of resources. And there's been some talk and some limited, I guess, help from the federal government with respect to election-based resources. But I'm wondering if you have any you know, thoughts about how that's likely to turn out. Are we going to see states that are really going to have trouble running elections in two or three months? Yeah, I mean, uh, sorry, what's a, it looking like? That's a critical issue right now. Um, you know, in the one of the prior stimulus packages, Congress allocated 400 million for, you know, emergency election stuff. And the, you know, the need is 4 billion, not Right. Not 400 million. So, you know, we're like $3.6 billion short. Uh, the HEROES Act, you know, which is the fourth, you know, yep. stimulus package uh, is pending before Congress. The Senate has said they're not going to take it up until, you know, August at the earliest. Right. Um, but it contains absolutely critical funding resources for states to be able to deal with the impact of COVID-19 um, on the, their elections, everything from, you know, you know, sanitizing election places and opening up more election places and, uh, you know, PPE and just, you know, public uh, education and everything that needs to be done uh, to let people vote safely during COVID-19. So that's a critical issue still pending at the federal level. Right. 
Yeah, but I think it's, well, I mean, I, I think that this is part of uh, President Trump and Mitch McConnell's strategy for suppressing the vote, right? I mean, I think the reason that Congress isn't going to pass sufficient resources to assist states uh, with implementing voting changes is because uh, Mitch McConnell doesn't want to make it easier for folks to vote. Um, that's why they're not going to help um, pass uh, vote by mail. There are lots of things that Congress could do if it weren't broken. Um, and I think that it's going to be incumbent upon states uh, to lead the way uh, to make sure that their citizens are able to access the polls. In Massachusetts, we're headed towards a budget crunch, um, and there's no question that there is a need for resources um, for uh, both the Secretary of State and municipalities to be able to implement some of this. At the same time, there are some resources. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there are, as I understand it, there's some resources under Help America Vote Act that haven't been allocated that could be available for this. There's some CARES Act resources. Um, and, you know, the fact is that this is a fundamental right uh, in our society, and we're going to need to invest in it. I also think that some of the budget um, estimates that I've seen that talk about the cost, for example, of implementing vote by mail, um, don't take into account some of the system effects um, that lead to uh, improvements in other kinds of efforts. So if you are able to get a higher percentage of your vote in, uh, by mail, that's going to affect the number of resources you need to uh, devote in other parts of the system. So you shouldn't look at the cost of vote by mail, you should look at the cost of running a good election where everybody has access. The other thing I want to just mention, because I think it's really important, is the Postal Service. Um, we need to give the Postal Service the resources that it's going to need uh, in order to handle a huge surge. Uh, of absentee voting and of vote by mail. Um, the other, the hidden thing that people are not focusing on that I think they ought to is absentee ballot processing machines. Mm. I was talking to a voting rights expert uh, who was telling me that he thinks we're going to have ventilator level shortages of voting, uh, absentee voting processing machines. Um, so there are a lot of hidden costs here and a lot of things that we're going to need to do uh, very quickly in the next four and a half months to get ready uh, for a really consequential election. Great. I think that's absolutely critical point. I would just add, I don't think that uh, Senate Republican support for election funding is a lost cause because a lot of Republican senators are actually hearing from their election officials in their states um, about, you know, how are we going to get, how are we going to do this if we don't have more funds? So I, I don't think it's a lost cause. That might be Pollyanna-ish. Uh, <laughs> but I think, you know, it's definitely worth pressing on for sure. Any last comments by panelists? That's your chance. Well, thanks everybody for participating on the panel as well as um, out there in the cyber world. Um, if anyone has, as with panels stressed, please get involved either as a poll worker uh, voter protection activities, um, follow what's going on. Um, each of our participants, as I mentioned earlier in the presentation, work for great organizations. Uh, reach out to them if you want more information. Go to their websites um, and find out how you can help. And there's um, for someone who's been to the election polls in different states every four years for a long time, <laughs> probably 16 years now, um, it's great. It's, a, it's great for if you're a lawyer particularly, it's fascinating, it's interesting, um, it's a great way to be involved and there's lots of different ways. You don't have to just do that. There's lots of things that can be done. 
um, in a nonpartisan way, if that's what you prefer, or partisan, you can really make the decision. But it's all to the same goal, which is to have a fair uh, election for everyone. And um, with that, um, we can um, say good night. And thank you for joining us for this uh, event sponsored by the Boston Bar Association and the American Constitution Society. Take care. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.